What are we doing? Mm, episode, I think. Oh, yeah, we're doing the... Okay. Yeah, okay. Cool. Welcome to Super, Super Duper Duperstitious, the paranormal podcast about the science of the strange and the spooky. <laughs> I'm Jake. And I'm... Trying to think of which syllable to, to emphasize. <laughs> I <had. laughs> Thanks so much for joining us this week. Uh, we are back again with the second part of our Super Duperstitious special report. Yes, we were talking about Hollywood creature feature type science stuff, looking at monsters in movies and uh, you know how the, the science of that compares to the real life science. So yeah, last week we kind of leaned in on the goofiness that is media portrayals of certain phenomena within science, specifically sort of mutations and genetics or animal behaviors, I guess one could say. Yeah. And uh, today... We're going to bring you the boring side. <laughs> no, of course I'm kidding. The part you guys are going to skip. Don't skip because, A, it's fun science. We think it's really neat. And we're going to keep talking about the movie part of it, too. And uh, stay tuned to the end of this sentence for a very special announcement, which is... We get in a shop up. Yes, as of the time you are <laughs> listening to this, unless we've already spoiled it on social media, I don't really know when we're going to post on stuff. As you may know, the rule is I post on Instagram, Wyatt posts on Facebook, no one posts on Twitter. That's how we run this. Right. No tweets from these <laughs> feats. You can follow us at Super Duper Stitch if you want to. Nothing will happen. We have a store now. <laughs> Go to superduperstitches.com slash shop. Swag. We're going to try that again. Superduperstitches.com slash shop. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can get some swag in your bag. We got t-shirts. We got we t-shirts. Got- we got different t-shirts. We got <laughs> Racerback tank top. We got a hoodie. We got stickers, and we have more on the way. Stay tuned for even more cool stuff. It's going to keep coming out throughout the rest of the calendar year and beyond. If you have been clutching at your wallet when thinking about becoming a Patreon supporter, but you just don't want to get locked into those stupid subscription costs, ugh, boring. But you do like the cool artwork of the show, and you all want- made by Lauren Marple. Yes, and you want stuff on your body. You can do that now. <laughs> Superdemonstrators.com slash shop. shop. We'll link it in the bio. It's great. You're going to love it. But now time for some science. Yeah. <laughs> With all that fun said, <laughs> put on your learning hats. <laughs> it's about to get science. <laughs> so last time I talked about interpretations of genetics in popular media, specifically TV and movies, of course, I summarized a few sci-fi narratives to detail the three main forms of mutation mm-hmm. that I felt were most often portrayed, specifically mutations resulting from hybridization of man and other uh, birth, so just sort of born with uh, new powers or new forms, and environmental contamination, so bomb goes off, suddenly all the ants get big. All the them get big. Exactly. I also playfully rated each movie on how badly it committed the three sort of sins of mutation, uh, misportrayal, uh, that a mutation would give a character one or more special abilities, change their body plan, or drive them to perform evil or chaotic actions. (laughs) Today, I'll be getting into the basics of the science of genetics, focusing on mutation and alteration of form and function. Don't be afraid. In a few minutes, you'll be smarter and cooler, and you can flex on your friends with your new nerdy knowledge. Nice. 
as a quick recap of my stuff, I covered movie monsters from an animal behavior standpoint last time. So the key examples I used dug into the idea of monsters always wanting to eat the human characters at absolutely all costs, and in spite of whether or not they already have food, uh, <laughs> the propensity for big scary things to fight to the death when they meet, and why all this matters from more than just a pedantic standpoint. Mm. The uh, you know that's not how that works in real life. Take it. Mm-hmm. There's more to it than that. In all cases, the real criticism we have with the movies in question is far more to do with internal logic and just following the narrative's own rules than it is about getting everything 100% real life accurate because they're, they're movies. We don't want them to be just like real life. It's That's fine. So we'll talk today about the real science behind some of the stuff we set up last week, and then we'll get into some of the ways that fixing that stuff can make movies cooler and scarier. Mm. And we'll maybe even talk more about uh, some specific examples of movie biology done right. So what? Is with that mutation ship. So I mentioned last time how genetics is a relatively young science, dating back to some guy named Gregor Mendel. Mm-hmm. To get more into that now, Mendel was a deeply philosophical man and eventually, uh, in his young age, became a friar, in part to get an education without having to pay for it himself, so quite a nice. frugal choice. He also took an interest in studying variation in plants in an experimental garden. Mm-hmm. Tending to pea plants, Mendel noticed that certain features of the plants, such as seed shape, flower color, seed coat tint, and pod shape, all seem to be maintained from generation to generation by breed. So you can imagine if one plant has large pods, the seedlings from that plant will grow into plants that also have large pods, on and yeah. on like this. Very consistent. So upon breeding the various strains with one another, however, Mendel found that the traits would themselves be mixed in the subsequent generations. So if you mixed a large pod pea plant with one that had maybe a sort of smaller pod, you might get medium pod-sized plants um, on average um, in the following generation. So there's a fair bit more to it than this, but suffice it to say, this was the crux of the discovery that observable features, what we would call phenotypes, are heritable. They're passed on from parents to children, or from the parental generation to the offspring. Hmm. I have a jump in with a little Mendel fun fact. Please. He Before he started doing the pea plant experiments, he started out with, I think, mice or rats. Oh my. And the um, the other monks at the uh, monastery he was at were like, yeah, maybe don't. <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, it's just, that seemed kind of um, a little bit more perverse as having all these mice... Gnarly breeding for the same purpose just to see what kind of traits are passed down right they're like oh you know plants that's fine you can do plants that's, we're okay with that so they they're into it's that funny how early on the ethics of science that we still use today were really firmly established it's cool <laughs> yep to continue there's a fair bit more to it than what mendel was identifying but suffice it to say this was the crux of the discovery that observable features what we would call phenotypes are heritable they're passed on from parents to children Further, these traits, these phenotypes, are subject to variation depending on an individual's particular parentage. Mendel didn't fully have the language for it at the time, but he'd identified the root of the concept of gene expression. So all of your traits, all of your physical traits from your hair color and waviness to the lightness or depth of your voice, from your general metabolic rate to your height and the ability to build muscle or what have you, Uh, Everything is at least partially genetically determined. It's based on genes you received from your mother and father, which have been varying in expression from the time you were conceived. Mm -hmm. But what does that mean? What does it mean for a gene to be expressed? Mm -hmm. 
Without getting too much into the weeds of it, phenotypes are based on the operation of proteins. That's the main thing we always hear DNA being referred to as the building blocks of life. Right. But, well, okay, it codes for stuff, and that's it. It codes for stuff, or even further wrong would be that DNA actually is the building block. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so you just use DNA to make everything, but yeah, so... So, right, it's really the proteins are kind of the building blocks, if you will. The same kinds of proteins that we eat when we're reaching for healthy foods. Seen from a biologic perspective, they are highly complex Legos, essentially. (laughs) Um, They can interact with one another to produce shapes and substances and to operate in more complex pathways like those underlying our hormone levels at adolescence or the daily operation of our immune system. The manufacturing of the many proteins in an organism's body is a continuous process, as all proteins eventually break down and must be replaced. Others may only be needed for brief periods in a creature's day or life, but how are proteins made? How does the body know when and where and how much of any given protein to produce? And what to make it actually look like. Like what Exactly. How do you make different kinds of protein? Because of course I've described them as Legos, but really proteins are like coiled, crazy looking donuts. Almost like if you've ever yeah. had like fried dough and it was sort of squirted out in that crazy pattern. It's like the I guess a funnel cake. There's a yeah. funnel cake is yeah. the one I'm looking for, <laughs> yes. Uh, essentially proteins are extremely complex biological funnel cake that gets everything done. Mm-hmm. So we can use, we can extend this kitchen-based metaphor to either help or confuse everyone at home. <laughs> you can think of each protein and its particular role at any given time as the result of a specific recipe from a massive cookbook. Mm-hmm. This huge cookbook is your genome, the totality of all genes that have ever made and will ever make you, you. It is a cookbook that was produced by essentially halving and recombining the cookbooks of your parents. And so it represents a mix and match of pure dad, pure mom, and combo dishes, if you will. As (laughs) such, they each had a bunch of recipes. They both, uh, you know, that were were unique to them. When they uh, when they had you, they just randomly tore a bunch of pages out of each and threw them together to make the same total number of pages, and and they were good to go. Exactly. So some of them, you got the full recipe from dad. Others, mom and dad came together and they were like, actually, let's use some of mom's, you know. Beef stroganoff recipe with some of these variations from dad. I think that actually make this will make it even better or probably worse. Although, <laughs> <laughs> adding in like a why did dad put rice crispies yeah. in his beef stroganoff? Yeah. But you get the idea. It just totally randomly combined in a way that just happens. People also sometimes think of it as shuffling a deck of cards with yeah. another. So, as such, you can think about, to extend this kitchen metaphor, you can think about the various parts of your body as the end results of these various recipes. The actual manufacture of proteins is based on what we call ribonucleic acid. Don't be afraid. You can just refer to it as RNA. RNA is a kind of sous chef. It's a messenger molecule that takes information stored in a gene about what protein or proteins need to be made and brings that information to the part of the cell that actually makes the protein. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine them scurrying over to this cookbook, getting another line of the recipe, and running over to have it prepped at a table somewhere else in the kitchen of your cell. The more of a protein that's needed, the more copies of RNA are produced to carry that information. Now, the information that RNA carries, as I've said, is based on the gene, on the certain recipe contained within the cookbook, if you will. All genetic material is made up of four components, adenine, cytosine, guanine, and thymine. 
These are often referred to as A, C, G, and T, respectively. Mm -hmm. Or AG. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Based on the orientation of these four components in sequence, RNA can carry rules to make up to 20 different kinds of building block pieces, along with two special ones that we won't get into, to use in producing proteins. So you can imagine it as a chain of these 20 building blocks, and depending on what order they're in, will form uh, different kinds of proteins, each with its own unique function. The body, to that end, can make thousands of proteins based on the combination of just these few building blocks. The trick comes in the arrangement of the A's, C's, G's, and T's. Depending on the order in which these components are read, the recipe can change from creating one kind of protein to something completely different. Mm -hmm. Now, because of the entropic nature of life, meaning the tendency for everything and anything to gradually deteriorate, deteriorate, including my sentences, (laughs) genetic material is constantly being replicated and repaired in your cells throughout your body. This replication and repair process is itself based on the expression of genes, but suffice it to say, is by necessity a process of incredibly high fidelity. After all, if we miscopy a line or two and change the change the recipe for nerve signaling or cell growth by just a few ingredients, we may have a major problem on our hands. <laughs> oh, you replaced all the sugar with salt? Oh no. Yeah, this tastes horrible. <laughs> Still, during DNA replication, there's always going to be a few little tiny fuck-ups along the way. (laughs) And when there are introductions or deletions of A's, C's, T's, or G's, at a very essential level, this is a mutation. Mm -hmm. But really, any change to a set of genetic sequence that persists in the organism or in its lineage is a mutation. Um, This can include, but is far from limited to, The incidental duplication or rearrangement of entirely functional genes. So you can have, in other words, if we want to extend this metaphor, one recipe copied over again. Highly localized changes in the coding sequence, what we would call uh, point mutations, and deletions of whole genes or parts of genes. So point mutations would be like changing an A to a C, something like this, where it might change what protein is made. And deletions of whole genes or parts of genes, this just happens sometimes by chance where entire genes are removed during replication and just will not be there in that cell uh, in the future. Mm -hmm. So there are almost more things that can cause mutations than can't. (laughs) Mutations can occur spontaneously just through, like I was describing before, the sort of natural decay of things over time. Um, they can occur by DNA replication error, as I've referred to, uh, by errors made during even DNA repair. So if your body notices that um, a certain section of DNA has been damaged, it'll try to repair it, but even during that process, might insert more DNA than is needed or remove more than it should have. And of course, by environmental induction. So this is kind of akin to what I was making fun of last time with the bomb goes off and the radiation makes the ant grow huge. Yeah. But quite realistically, that sort of thing does happen in this, insofar as environmental factors can damage DNA and lead to mutations. It's just essentially impossible that it would cause spontaneous explosive growth. Yeah, there's tons of fail-safes in place for your DNA where, like you mentioned, different the different order of things can um, determine how proteins are made. 
but when certain little changes do occur, it can still produce the exact same product because of just how how Where the redundancies and the right. coding and what it actually codes for, plus the fact that, I don't know if you're going to say this or not, but the fact that there's huge swaths of our whole genome that don't really do anything. I don't get into it. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot of room for all kinds of shit to happen that'll never affect anything to do with your body and how you function, so you won't be turned into a monster or an X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> At least because of genetic mutation. <laughs> yes. You may still be one <laughs> in your heart. That's right. So, suffice it to say, though, that when this happens during the production of sex cells, such as sperm or eggs, it can alter genetic material such that the offspring are born with traits that may be even more distinct from those seen in their parents. Mm-hmm. In general, mutations either cause a loss or gain of function for an organism. Regardless of the result, mutations are either harmful in the sense that they reduce the organ organism's ability to reproduce and thus the likelihood of the mutation sticking around, or beneficial, advantageous to reproduction, and thus more likely to be retained. There are also a ton, as Jake just referred to, of neutral mutations. Things that change in the genes, things that change throughout the genome, that don't have a net positive or negative effect on the organism's overall likelihood. Bases have changed, genetic material has shifted around, but there isn't any change at the phenotypic level. To get into that today would be a little bit too much, but much suffice inside to say, baseball. Yeah, suffice it to say, it happens. So, a classic example of a beneficial mutation is antibiotic resistance among bacteria. Mm-hmm. Sure, we may resent this because we typically only deploy antibiotics when we need to knock out a bacterial infection. But from the perspective of the bacterial strain, it's literally life or death. When there's a change in the genetic structure that is not inherited from a parent and also not passed on to offspring, we call this a somatic mutation, mm-hmm. soma being a reference to the body. Such mutations are typically caused by environmental factors such as ultraviolet radiation or exposure to harmful chemicals, either of which may badly damage DNA. This is why you need to put on your sunscreen. These damages most often lead to diseases like cancer, which, seen from a biological standpoint, is essentially the jailbreaking of cell reproduction. Our cells have a natural life-death cycle, and there's a limit to how much tissue is quote-unquote supposed to be maintained in any part of the body. Um, Elements that wear out through continuous use, such as our nails and hair, continuously grow, but most other parts are basically in maintenance mode. Cancer is the result of uh, cells getting kicked past maintenance into full-on growth. Their underlying genes have, through damage, likely lost components which would have naturally limited this process. When damage occurs to DNA, there's sometimes processes within cells that'll cause it to say, oh, something's fucked up here, this isn't going to work, and it'll just shut down. Just shut the cell, yeah. Cancer is when that somehow is overridden and things just go crazy. Right. So taking it back to the broader concept of beneficial and harmful mutation, many of these changes happen by chance. As sex cells are being formed, little tweaks in the underlying sequence pile up, and offspring may be born with many of the same traits of their parents along with a little something extra. It is this generational process of subtle chance change that feeds directly into the much grander endeavor of evolution by natural selection. As I referred to earlier, beneficial mutations tend to spread and harmful ones get weeded out simply because the organism who has one or the other is either doing better or not as well at reproducing. 
And of course, all of this hinges on the environment the, the particular organism and its lineage um, are in. So being able to extract air from water with gills is great if you're in the water. Mm-hmm. Of course, the key word in all of this is gradual. Typically, the more ridiculous a mutation, the less likely it is to be beneficial to an organism. Yes. Um, so sorry, no laser eyes or telekinesis just yet. <laughs> and that's pretty much what I've got for you on mutations today. Very cool. Yeah, the idea of how most movies portray mutation as some kind of mutagen, some chemical, some something shows up and suddenly dramatically a spontaneous, changes. spontaneous, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Full and, on. And uh, if a change that dramatic occurs to your DNA probably just gonna be cancer (laughs) yeah unfortunately most often it will be damage that has been done and uh the result is not good yes um a related phenomenon to mutation as a movie trope for creating monsters that i kind of want to bring up is genetic engineering as a movie trope for Mm. engineering or for creating monsters Mm -hmm. scientists do some kind of science on a thing and it turns into a scarier dangerous -er thing Mm -hmm. Uh, i think this comes mostly from hollywood profoundly misunderstanding how that all works and mm-hmm. liking the idea that genetics equals magic. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, oh, you can just do anything. Oh, exactly. Yeah. And it can work as a shorthand for representing humanity's hubris. So that's that's fine when they do that for that narrative purpose. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, genetic engineering is just a kind of a hand-wavy solution to magically make whatever from whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I do very badly want to dig into how transgenics works and or the whole recombinant DNA process of putting genes into other things. But I think that may be best saved for another oh, hell day. Yeah. yeah. Also to talk about transposable elements or... There's so much to do with, yeah. The fact that the tree of life is just like a <laughs> tingled mass of insanity. Yep. Or just like what proportion of our genome is just Not viral, even, yeah. viral DNA that's exactly. just showed up over the years. Exactly. So bacterial. Both, as we're kind of, uh, we're kind of tipping our hand here, we both have a number of years of direct experience in molecular genetic research work, including a bit of light cloning. Uh, <laughs> so we have plenty to say on the topic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um... In fact, we may or maybe overdue for an episode about supposed cryptids and or urban legend monsters oh, created yeah. via experimental or genetic experiments. Oh, that'd be cool. Or one about cloning, so we can save all this till then. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, I'll just say that I have some major notes about the movie Splice. <laughs> now, before we move on to more science. I dare say we imbibe a la The, the Quaff. We drink beer on the show a lot. We now review beer on the show also in very official capacity. It's called The Quaff. We do not normally do it so quickly after on the heels of a previous instance of The Quaff, but this is an emergency quaff. A quaff do. Mm-hmm. Also, we, we don't always record them. No, we, we always record them, the same episode where we are releasing oh, them. Oh, yes. Know exactly. Every single time we record The Quaff, it is in the episode that we are recording it. And, and, and we, this is no exception. This is no exception. Yes. We're actually recording it this episode, just like for we the first do. time that we have always done. Exactly. And so, so we review beer on the categories of physicality. What the beer is like. What is it? What's the can look like, or the or the bottle, as may be the case. The body of the beer. Yes. The chugability. How fast do you drink this beer? Does it taste good? What's it like? And of course the. One everyone, <laughs> shut up, Jake. <laughs> the one everyone knows, agrees on, and just can't live without the joie, joie de vivre. De vivre. 
I was wanting to wait till it was definitely my turn to talk. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So Begin this, talking now. Go. Uh, so, if you remember back to episode 69, we maybe ran afoul of a friend of the show and were, were forced, <laughs> forced to drink some... Some things. Questionable beverages. Yeah, I'll, uh, if you listen to that episode, or I'll also link to the Instagram post of the cocktails. Uh, Colin, um, we had to uh, we had to drink some things that were not so good. Now, Colin has sent us some things to drink that are great. So good. Yes. these uh, He works at the brewery IBU Syracuse, up in Syracuse, I want to say Pennsylvania? <laughs> uh, Syracuse, New York. Uh, I don't know. And the beer we have, he gave us four beers from the brewery. IB, of course, stands for it's beer. Uh. <laughs> Syracuse. <laughs> the particular beer we're drinking today is called Big Man on Campus. This is a beer. Colin makes the artwork for the cans at IB Syracuse. He also made Very cool. this beer. Ooh. So this is. What? He brewed and labeled? He did indeed. Colin, you're a one man show. This is awesome. So this will be an IPA. You can see it on here. It says, uh, Bucko, on it, label art by Bucko. Thanks, Bucko, for sending us these beers. We do not have time to review the other three beers, so we're just going to dump them all together into one um, cup and drink them all once and see what that's like. By cup, he means bucket, and by drink, he means chug. Yes. All right, so we have, to begin with, physicality. Here is the can. Can is awesome. by our dear friend Colin, a Bucko himself. Big man on campus. Got a pretty good kind Got of a uh, werewolf looking teen, teen wolf teen situation wolf going on. Vibes. Jimmy on a sport jacket. He is holding a different beer. I'm kind of tantalized to know what beer this werewolf guy is about to pound. <laughs> He's got sort of uh, Ray Bans evocative glass shades on that say IBU on the side instead, which is kind of cute. And uh, yeah, overall, a vivacious and playful label uh-huh which i'm going to give a four to <laughs> four four out of ten but now let's look at also if you mind reaching over your left shoulder to that piece of paper on oh, those two of them so you gotta actually look all right <laughs> that one there is that's a print that colin sent us too not the, not oh, the yes. big one the, the small one there you go uh along with these beers he'll set a bunch of mike and ikes to cover up the sound of the beer in the box even though from what i understand from looking it up it's legal to ship beer from new york and legal to receive beer in New Hampshire. So, totally fine to have set the can. Maybe he just wanted to send some Mike and Ikes Yes, along. he did. So, thanks for the Mike and Ikes. We Are will we meant to maybe... eat the Mike and Ikes while tasting the beer? If so, seems... we have messed it up. Yeah. I, of course, was kidding about my label rating. Yes, we want to give, give a it a full... three. <laughs> That's right. Now, we also have something else to rate the physicality of, and that is this print here. I have not yet seen it. Jake has. I'm still averting my eyes. Here you go. No, you can look I at it I want now. to spend every minute on my <laughs> Never life. Never look at it again. Ha! Whoa, that's cool. Damn. So Colin, extremely say, cool. What would you say the title of that would be? Uh, Colin Cthulhu? I think Call of Cthulhu, probably. Oh, okay. Call there of Cthulhu. Ha ha. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> so we have Cthulhu who has broken his chains, and he's about to lick, lift the red telephone that is being mounted on a little stone pedestal. Yes. Probably to call the president to let him know that the day of soul collection has begun. Yes. Uh, so, this is so fucking cool. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Very. Thank you so much, Colin. Awesome stuff. What? Wish you what had an Instagram we could uh, we could pimp, but oh well. Uh, so yeah. we'll, we'll post wow. a photo of this and, of course, the beer can as usual on the. On our Instagram Super for cool. this, this week's episode. So, overall, physicality, we also got to look at the beer, too. We can't really yes. rate that. So, let me. Uh, yeah, do you, right. I do only gave it. Um, 
Ah, uh, yeah. Oh, over everything. Are you okay? There's a lot of blood inside the beer now. I think that's supposed to help the flavor. All right, now we'll pe pour into mine first, of course. Oh, okay. Tilt that shit. Sorry. Mmm. Very nice sound. So there's that. That's a very nice New England IPA looking uh, color and stuff. So that's cool. Let me grab your glass. Do you or want? With to, one hand. Do you want to um, swatch the last of this? We already. We just had. There you go. <laughs> we just had the other one that he sent us. Or one of the other ones he sent us. Um, Fratimal House, which is a a berry sour. I'm sorry. Um, all right. What is going for the epicest pour? Oh yeah. <laughs> just drive the microphone into the beer. <laughs> the sound, of course, was skabloomph. And uh, we got part of that. All right, we now have everything we need to judge physicality. We can see the beer, why it's going to dump it all over. Oh, God. <laughs> Please, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so close. I was holding the beer over his last will and testament. <laughs> There's some... Ooh, some sediment. sediment. Oh, there's a bug in it. It's, it's a fly landed on the outside of my glass and it's walking around. Get off. Okay, there we're good. Just saw a piece of sediment sinking down and then a bug walking up and I got really confused and scared, but that's uh, unrelated. This may be the most sedimentous beer I've ever seen. <laughs> in a very good way. Yeah. So, cool. What are you going to give the physicality? Give it a 10 out of 10, baby. Alrighty. It's too cool. Love the can. The beer looks good. <laughs> Ooh, that is very Ooh. nice. That silence, of course, was indicating that we were, of course, assessing chuggability. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is very tasty. Quite poundable. I would give this an eight. I was going to give it an eight, actually, as well. Not to say that it's not super tasty, because like sometimes we'll give lower ratings to things with very complex. Oh taste. yeah, things but can be is, delicious, but yeah, it's like this is readily yeah, gulpable. It's super beer. smooth, ready yeah. to crush several of these on a hot summer's day. Mm -hmm. Which luckily it is still quite warm for mm -hmm. this random uh, end of September day. Mm -hmm. And uh, that is that's some good stuff. What should we say then for the Joie de Vivre, Jimmy? <laughs> You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> and and that has, has been, been The Quaff. Thanks, Colin. Thank you very much. Um, I think you have more things to read now. Yeah, I guess science time now. So now we'll get into, oh, <laughs> into the uh, behavior stuff. So my main point last episode was that creatures in movies don't act like creatures in real life, which sounds dumb and obvious. They're monsters, but some slight tweaks to realism can actually help boost the horror elements and the stakes for the characters involved. So actually last night I rewatched the 2005 King Kong clip that I played last episode. Damn. Uh, oh yeah. Oh my god. Obviously it doesn't help things feel real or meaningful when that much CGI is being used. No indeed. Or an action scene stretches on for that long. It's like seven minutes I think. CGI of course stands for Creature Goes Insane. Exactly. Uh, but also when the danger presented is so unreal. In this case Big Dinos Go Chomp want to eat Lady even though Giant Gorilla Punch uh, it quickly removes any suspense or dramatic tension of any kind. Mm -hmm. um, so let's get into that a little bit first. Monsters fighting. So we're gonna start, and then I'll talk. I'll talk about the animal science, and then I'll talk about movies a little. So when animals interact in an aggressive way, we call that agonistic behavior. 
So the term actually encompasses both sides of the encounter. It's the behavior of the aggressor that effectively, you know, quote unquote, wins the fight or competitive display or what have you, as well as the behavior of the one who backs down or runs away or loses. So it's it's the entirety of that whole kind of encounter is agonistic behavior. This kind of behavior usually is because of competition of some sort. So for mates, for territory, for food, whatever. Like I said last time, the usual way this plays out is with a bunch of posturing and other stuff that can let the animals involved size each other up and try and judge who is bigger and badder without having to actually really put it to the test beyond just kind of evaluating it. Just think you, about drunk bros in college. Exactly. A lot of like kind of chest thumping and putting your arms out to the side and looking each other in the eye and yelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eventually hugging, kissing. Yeah. Um, one interesting example that came up when I was looking up different just ways of defining the nature is the stock-eyed flies. That's oh, kind of my, your territory. That's my territory for sure. What's the deal with those as far as, is it just the size of their hammerheads? Yeah. They, will, they will jockey for position, but they absolutely assess each other based on eye stock length, not, uh, you know, altogether different from maybe deer antlers or something like this. Yeah. And it's just a very uh, useful way of gauging male viability. And females are also very choosy as far as wanting to mate with males with longer eye stocks. So the trait just gets more and more incredible, but they will... Uh, yeah, <laughs> which when you see, I mean, we'll maybe we'll try to post a picture of a of um a stock eyed uh, was it stock eyed fly? Is that they're called? What are they called? Uh, flock eyed sty. Flock eyed sty. Sorry, and um, you can see what they, they do look pretty ridiculous. Their eyes, like a hammerhead shark, is way off to the sides. Mm-hmm. Even more intense, if anything. Oh, so much more intense. And the idea that it's like, oh, the the more intense it is, the better off they are. Exactly. Seems like it get pretty ridiculous pretty fast. This all has to do with meiotic drive, but we're not going to get into that. No. Right now. <laughs> That shit is crazy. <laughs> we will say that when they first actually come out of their pupa to become the full-on adult, they inflate their they heads. They have to blow their heads up. Yeah, to make the eyes go out. <laughs> it's so weird. And you thought your childhood was hard. <laughs> so in the end of these kind of um, you know face-offs and stuff... Quite literally. Yeah, you, yeah, in this case, uh, usually one backs off and concedes to the winners. Like, okay, they'll kind of size each other up, and then one will kind of just back down, and that's that. Never back down. <laughs> Last app, I also say, uh, said that straight-up fighting is actually pretty rare in animals because it carries with it the risk of injury or even death. Oh, yeah. This is where movie monsters usually start, is with fights <laughs> to the death. Yeah, the default setting is yes. fuck them up. <laughs> but if every fight is a fight to the death, then you're basically setting yourself up to maybe die, which mm-hmm. isn't great. And that's where the narrative problem of stakes come into play. Mm-hmm. So life or death seems like the highest possible stakes you could set in your movie, but maintaining that... Is much harder when your monster is just going ham at all times. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no room to ratchet. Wait, I thought up the- you said steaks. Now we're talking about ham. <laughs> uh, there's no room to ratchet up the tension if you start at 11. Right. So it's just like if it's just constantly doing this one thing. Oh, it's just going crazy trying to kill. There's no room for. You can't top it out. The gain has been turned all the way up. Exactly. So if we look at real animal behavior for inspiration, we can see a self-awareness that makes a big difference. Uh, any hesitation to engage in mortal combat. Also, when I was typing Mortal Kombat, it kept trying to autocorrect to combat with a K. Like the Google Docs wanted it to be the video game. Really? Yeah. Wow. I was very happy about that. That's very sweet. Um, any hesitation to engage in Mortal Kombat suggests enough intelligence to care about self-preservation. And so when that degree of awareness has been established, it can make it scarier when the monster does go for the kill. Mm. So you can kind of tell, it, it, it kind of knows what it's doing. It has mm-hmm. more of a motive going on mm-hmm. into it other than just mindlessly killing things. Uh, but it's constantly doing the same thing. It's not as effective for the scare. So it's just it's worth having it be 
little more nuanced than that for your story. For your stories. Yes. Oh, oh, my paper. I'll come back. See, this is a moment of tension right here. If that paper was constantly falling, it wouldn't be so surprising. (laughs) (laughs) You could then say, what about the fact that the monsters in some of the movies that I cited last week are fighting for food? Right. Either fighting each other or otherwise. Resource acquisition. Yes, and other t- uh, oftentimes critical resources can be the incentive for real animals to cross that threshold and to behaving more violently. But in all the examples I gave last week, the monsters went to increasingly bonkers lengths to eat the human characters, whether that meant leaving a huge meal they were already eating. I was going to say, yeah. yeah. In order to chase down the tiny humans or getting the absolute shit kicked out of them by a bigger monster to try and eat one tiny human. Even after having eaten something bigger than the human. Exactly. What the fuck? Uh, or even deliberately throwing up a completed meal of a human in oh, order to yeah. instead eat a different specific <laughs> human. <laughs> Movies go to weird lengths to try and establish that, hey, the monster's dangerous, going to eat the good guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, all these examples are available as video clips linked in the previous episode's description. If you aren't familiar with what I'm talking about, good stuff. Uh, the truly crazy logic of all this brings me to what's called in ecology a functional response. Mm-hmm. It's the behavior of an animal that eats stuff as a function of the amount of stuff available for it to eat. So you can graph it as a point. It's a, a function you can graph. Um, and, and for today, we'll look at it specifically from the perspective of a predator-prey relationship. So uh, Canadian ecologist C.S. Holling broke it down into types 1, 2, and 3. Uh, type 1 is just a linear response. So there's more prey. Predators will eat more. Mm-hmm. This works in a very simple situations where prey is super easy to catch and eat. So there's no real effort expanded whatsoever. Uh, no fighting a giant gorilla to the death, for example. Uh, type 2 is more of what you might expect in nature. As prey abundance increases but predator abundance stays the same, predators will keep eating more prey until they reach the maximum amount they can actually take down and eat. Mm-hmm. So they only have so much energy to keep going out and hunting and stuff and right. so much room in their stomachs to eat all this stuff after all. That is another aspect of... Even often apex predators have to be very careful and wise about what prey items they select because yeah. very many, you know, we think about, you know, wolves and bears just sort of having their way in their environments as far as what they're going to take down. But those creatures can be mortally wounded, even if they wind up killing their prey item. Um, you know, deer and other creatures are, you know, they have their means of fighting back Mm -hmm. and they will do so uh vigorously i mean this is also why you know uh lions or hyenas and things they often will fight over items that have already been killed rather than try to take down new things because you can go from apex predator to just another dead thing (laughs) (laughs) with a swift kick of a hoof to the face exactly so the godless killing machine model of the movies is already out the window based on just that alone and then the probably the most complex of these three and the most true to life is a type three functional response which is when predators have more than one kind of prey available right and the amount of each is what's changing so same number of predators but different amount of each type of prey they can choose from the pick and mix exactly so as one option becomes less available than another uh, you don't really bother with it anymore and you said seek out what you know you can find Mm-hmm. So if one particular thing is like dwindling, you're not going to just like go out of your way to search for that one thing when there's a lot more of the other thing around. So if you've never encountered puny humans as prey except for this one time today, but have ready access to and are actively eating one of the many larger animals that are around you all the time, maybe don't go after the human option. <laughs> uh, but you know, maybe maybe it's just that we are a rare delicacy that is so delectable it's heartbreaking. It's hard to say. 
but we could put it this way. If you've been served your entree of a gigantic porterhouse steak, why would you sprint across the restaurant to tackle a server carrying a plate with a couple of appetizers on it? You already have food and more of it. So it just doesn't make sense to do. But what are the apps? <laughs> it's like a Welsh rare bit or something. Rare is in the name. How many more chances are you going to get to try that thing? <laughs> um, so to tie this all back to why this kind of stuff matters for movies, it's, again, all about steaks. I realized only too late that I used <laughs> a steak as an example. I did not mean to have that. It really there. is all about steaks, it, isn't it? Yeah. At the end of the day. Um, if you portray your monster as wanting to eat all the main characters and it keeps picking them off one at a time, how much can it eat? Can it really keep us increasingly scared as the movie goes on? If, you know, it's been eating this oh, many people yeah. over the course of however long the movie takes place, like, are we going to still be worried? Oh, it's going to just keep eating more of them. What about movies like Jaws where there is continuous eating of people but there's always a reset of the tension right yes there's consumption then vanish so there's yeah there's a way of ratcheting that up without it being it, it happens over the course of days and stuff so there's a way to just make a that devil's work. advocate moment oh all. absolutely and we're gonna we'll, we can talk about movies that do it right in a second too <gasps> i think it's very useful okay if as is typical on the way towards the climax of a movie the remaining characters are fighting harder and harder to survive how much trouble is the monster going to go to just to eat the last survivors after eating all their friends mm-hmm. you should watch movie alien <laughs> Work pretty hard. The more real its behavior feels, even to an audience of non-biologists who aren't looking for this sort of thing like I might be, um, <laughs> the more likely it is that the danger will feel real. You don't have to be taught all this stuff about ecological functions and stuff. It's built to, into our brain. Exactly. It taps into our own evolutionary instincts of just right. what, like, oh no, they're in danger. Oh no. Like If it feels like the kind of thing that could happen in real life, even if it was with a totally made up movie monster, mm-hmm. then it can thus make it more scary so even if you want to make a monster that stalks your characters for the whole movie with the intent of killing them a degree of animal realism instead of non-stop slavering jaws of death can make it seem more intelligent mm-hmm. or its motives more horribly unknow- unknowable or both mm-hmm. so I, I mentioned last week like the idea of so you can have um different types of movies have like say either just normal animals acting crazy and scary so that's one model of monster movie you can have Mm -hmm. and if you make their behavior seem kind of reasonably real then it can be really scary that oh what if you're in that situation and this real animal was doing this real thing boy that's scary or you can have it be (laughs) like a a a mutated version of an animal like they have to do like the where there's like a a monster version of an animal either a giant now they're acting in a burn so they have yeah they're different from normal but if you still have that twist where it's like it's acting in a way that seems like it kind of knows what it's doing, then you aren't sure what its motives are and stuff. Mm. And you can take that a further step to have just a true monster. Like I used the Demogorgon from Stranger Things last week mm-hmm. as an example, where not only is its appearance truly monstrous, where it's like in the uncanny valley fully and it's just super weird, it's also acting in a way that you don't really know what to expect. Sometimes it's mm. t- outright eating people, sometimes it's dragging them back to the upside down and storing them in that weird stuff, and you really don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> And that can make it pretty scary. Unpredictable. So, yeah. So it's just when you consider those aspects of behavior and apply them to a movie, you can then make that movie even more effective for its spooks and stuff. So you want to talk a little bit about movies that do kind of hit it right? Um, sure. I haven't seen Gattaca. Do they handle genetics well? As I recall, I guess I could have watched that in preparation. We don't have that much time. I, we I saw... I, I initially... The one and only time I've seen Gattaca was in eighth grade. 
to my science teacher's credit, they showed it to <laughs> us. And it was kind of beyond our depth at the time, but we like enjoyed it well enough. If folks don't know, Gattaca is the story of how Jude Law doesn't have fun in the future, I guess. <laughs> it's Jude Law, right? Am I wrong? I don't know, actually. I had to get this right. <laughs> uh, uh, Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke and... Mm, Uma Thurman. Oh, and Jude Law's in it. So, okay, it's the future... Not the super far future, but far enough, and uh, we have enough control as a society over our gene expression and genetic makeup and what have you that babies can be born sort of like augmented to be, you know, stronger, faster, smarter, what Straight up eugenics then. Straight up eugenics, but like societally endorsed, Hmm. but also it has permeated all of the rules and things, so... There absolutely is bias against people who are born without any modification whatsoever. So it sounds like they use um, eugenics and transgenically modifying people as a tool to then say, here's this kind of which dystopian future or just not just where Yeah, where this um, particular application is used to make people different and that causes all these different social changes and that's where it does the whole exploration of oh what does that yeah, mean yeah the for- philosophical challenge of it and i think it's pretty spot on and it was pretty prescient as well because we now do have the capacity to edit genes to edit genetic makeup through a system called crispr cas9 i just think of that one douchebag in his garage it's like oh yeah you can just buy you can just put genes in yourself he has no idea what he's doing but it's like encouraging everyone to buy crispr cas like stuff to do it themselves like but you don't even know what you're doing who is this guy i don't remember his name he's just like he, he was can, like so into it though he himself a biohacker a and, biohacker uh, yeah. yes the term people use to <laughs> who are like trying to self-augment yes um but the, the technology is already around as far as it's, it's possible to make these changes to one's genome, and that's just a, a speculative fiction movie looking at what that could then mean. So it's pretty spot on, especially as like a, just a think piece. I think it's it's uh, commits no major sins. And they don't go into too much detail about the actual mechanism of how they're changing people's genes. It's like, oh, hey, we're able to do it, and that's that. It's so just, yeah, it, it's happening. It maintains its own internal logic, right. which is important. Another example that's pretty cool, obviously, is the first Jurassic Park movie. They, they do all right, yeah. Yeah, they do fairly well with actually both halves of what we talked about, the ge- genetics part of it and the behavior part, where they have uh, the genetics, like, okay, we, we found DNA of these dinosaurs inside of these mosquitoes that had fed on dinosaurs, so the, di- the DNA is there, and so I was like, well, you know, it's pretty old DNA, is it totally intact? Oh, not totally. So we were able to just kind of supplement some of it with other DNA from modern animals. They at animals least nod and, to the fact that ancient so, DNA is deteriorated as Yeah, and hell. they... And they left it at that. Like, okay, cool. So we're on board with that. Great. And the dinosaurs are there. They act like animals would as far as each of them. Like they, they, um, the predators want to hunt. Um, the T-Rex is only fed chained up goats sometimes. So when it's able to break loose and there's just a bunch of people sitting there in cars, it's like, yeah, I'm going to try and eat that. Sure. Assuming T-Rex was a hunter, not a scavenger. Still not totally sure whether it or not it was a hunter or a scavenger. It right. seems like a lot of evidence for either way. But It's uh, just full on opportunistic. Probably very much like a giant bear. Yeah, I mean, I feel like anything like that probably could do both equally right. well and succeed either way. They uh, use a bit of a broad brush, as I recall, though, with that, like, we used frog DNA to patch it up. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> and then, and yeah, like, oh, yeah, they couldn't reproduce because they're all female, so there's um, they don't have the ability to make more. Mm. We can control exactly how many of them there are on the island. They can't just breed 
mm-hmm. and they manage to spontaneously change sex. Some animals do do that, though. Absolutely. And that was the explanation in the movie. Oh, you know, we use some frog DNA, and it's possible some frogs can do that when there's mm-hmm. a, a kind of single-sex environment. It's actually, they, they even went a step further than they had to by saying, oh, you know, some frogs can do that. Maybe they use the DNA of a frog that can do that. A lot of animals can do that. Right. Usually um, herps, like, uh, amphibians and, and <laughs> uh, reptiles, or even some fish, too, as well. Some fish when, as well, yes. Yeah, when there are environments where there's not enough uh, kind of mix of sexes to be able to mate, one will change to the other. It can go either direction, mm-hmm. and then they're able to mate. Pretty wild. So, yeah, so no reason at all why life couldn't find a way. And they... they <laughs> to coin a phrase, if you will. Yes. So, um, so that's a pretty good example. And then yeah. as far as getting... If you want to get into, like, oh, making monsters, full-on sci-fi, kind of almost fantasy stuff... We also touched on Annihilation last week. And that's yes. one where if yeah. you, we're not saying you have to make everything totally realistic to you. Like, this is how science actually does work. Don't explain too much of the mechanism and just get it right. You can just have a thing like, well, there's this weird force field and it's just like refracting all of everything. Yeah, it's the zone in which rules don't work quite right. Yeah, like you oh, go okay. in and it's just refracting DNA of all living right. things within this particular area. And they're all just getting mixed up and stuff is happening. Sure. Okay. Why okay. not? Yeah. And then it just leaves all this room to have these weird combinations Kinda of like playful. a shark and a crocodile or shark and an alligator mixed up together and yeah, mm-hmm. like um a person with like fungal DNA inside of them that bursts out of them and just mm-hmm. weird they or uh, you know, a person and plants, just weird, weird stuff mixing up. No real with knowing what's gonna mix up and stuff. And it's just really a lot of room for creativity, a lot of room for intense body horror and stuff, and just mm-hmm. really cool stuff. Mm-hmm. That awful bear will always bring up on the show. Ah, uh, yes. And uh, and without the need to really explain it too much, because like, okay, well, you have a rule you've established internally, and now stuff happens. Because they easily could have ruined their own premise if they were like, I figured out how the force field works. Yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> it's actually like firing the DNA from one into another, and this and that, and re- then suddenly you're like, that wouldn't happen. And then Which it just is gets, funny yeah. that there's a thing about that. The less you are given, the more you're like, yeah, okay. Yeah. All you have to do is establish internal logic that is like, okay, that makes sense, and yeah. then move on. Yeah, as long as your characters don't get it either. <laughs> that's just the narrative limit. Boom. Yeah, we, we're not scientists trying to say that any non-real science in movies sucks and is bad. No, it's We're great. just saying that, hey, if you just make it so that it makes sense for the movie... Yeah, and uh, and works in a way that is narratively satisfying. That's cool. Good to go. And uh, yeah, so if you were to apply some of the stuff we've talked about in the last two weeks to your movies, you can make monsters that are real scary and cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, either way, we're still going to watch the movies because movies are fun. So, that's really the take home I think, at the end of it all. Yeah, movies are fun. We're having fun. Hope hey. you had some fun too and learned some science. What more can I say? But tune in next week. We're going to be kicking off our October sessions. Yes, we're going to be doing all the fun, cool Halloween build-up we did last year. It's going to be neat, a lot of neat guests and stuff before we get there. We do want to encourage you, if you have liked listening to the show, liked the content we've brought you, it would mean the world to us if you were interested in uh, supporting the show in some way. A little bit of a little bit of dough thrown our way. Yes, indeed. Please do join the Patreon if you're feeling at all generous and want some perks. Uh, we have a lot of cool bonus material that we throw up just for Patreon listeners or supporters. In and, fact, uh, I think we should thank a couple of our patrons right now. What do you think? Ooh, I dare say we do. Here, let's fire up this machine here. Oh, it's uh, it's really going today. Oh, boy. Yeah, all let, right. me, uh, let me stick the wire into my head. Yeah, me too. And just, oh, boy. Yep. Feels like it does. 
So this machine is uh, it allows us to um, enact this pander function, the patron appreciation neural dive for evaluation of risk, where we focus on a particular patron chosen at random from our list of patrons, and we determine what cryptid in the world they most need to be careful if they encounter. Yes. Of which they most need to be careful if they encounter. Yes. And dare I go first? I think you dare. Hmm. Brett R. Oh, wow. I think the computer is broken. The Doggator. Doggator? Oh, my God. <laughs> is that like Snake Dog? <laughs> uh, well, let's find out. A river cryptid that has the appearance of the hybrid of a alligator and a dog. You know, sometimes the uh, information we get from the machine is not super clear to us. We're just interpreting what we get. I feel like my brain's getting really hot. It can be seen in the Abita Mystery House, and also the Anita Mystery House, which have a variety of cryptids. What? <laughs> One of them is the Doggator, baptized as Daryl. What? <laughs> the Scaly Pooch has its own house and food dish, surrounded with plants. Nothing is known about the biology and habitat of this reptomammalian hybrid, which also happens in another cryptids, such as the Coonigator or Crocodingo. <laughs> We're getting into sci-fi original movie territory here. I have another interesting tidbit, which is that, like the Bassigator, it's sometimes considered a fearsome critter. If it was real, it would probably be a survivor of the extinct crocodiles in which some, in which some would stand upright like that. Yep. Great. So, <laughs> Brett, I think you actually have nothing to worry about, my friend. Perfect. I think this was an error in the machine. Actually, perhaps you may need to be on the lookout for literally every single thing that goes bump anywhere. Because Always I think this possible. was just an error in the computer. And, yes, thank you so much for your support. I hope this helps you in your life as you have helped us in ours. Yes. I'm going to focus in on hmm, Mason from Seattle, Washington. You best not be running into Chupaku, uh, also known as the Curupira. It's a mythological creature of Brazilian folklore, and its more monstrous Colombian version is known as Boraro, the Pale Ones. What does it suck? It is a protector of wildlife, so if you're not <laughs> trying to fuck with wildlife, you should be okay, Mason. I'm getting some more details now. The machine is saying, beyond its feet, however, it is far more grotesque in appearance. I'm not sure what to make of that. Um, Wait. It's very so does it have really beautiful feet? I guess. It is very tall to the extent <laughs> it is tree-sized. Pale skin, but covered in black fur. Fetishy people, look out. Has large, <laughs> forward-facing ears, fangs, and is said to suck the bodily fluids of its prey. Sometimes through the anus? Uh, oh, no. Fetishy people, look out. Out. Yeah, but if uh, if you stay out of the Amazon or at least don't actively destroy it in person, should be safe from the Chupacu. Though if Bolsonaro has his way, there will be no Amazon say. to worry about the creatures of anyway. Maybe he's just into that, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. It might doing. be. He's just trying to encourage it to come out and attack. At any rate, thank you, Mason. Thank and, you very uh, much. Thank you to anyone interested in, uh, in supporting the show. We really At appreciate it. any level of support, you can be entered into the sort of raffle to have your creature of uh, destiny determined by the machine. Yes. Thank you guys so much for your support and hoping you guys enjoyed this episode very much. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for our October specials. 
We're going to be interviewing some cool folks all over the place. Neat guests. This is going to be a very fun, spooky time. And, uh, oh, yeah. shit. We should, uh, we should still, un- we haven't unplugged yet. Oh. Yeah, let's, uh, let's pull these out of our brains here. Okay, the screen on the device says data downloading. Uh-oh. Okay, let's take something out. <laughs> oh. All right. All right. Uh, worry about that later. <laughs> See what yeah. happened there. And, uh... See you guys next bye. week.